The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. If you could open your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27. So our passage today will be in uh, the book of Matthew, chapter 27, verse 55, going through chapter 28, verse 15. If you're using one of the Pewback Bibles in front of you, that's on page 784. And also, if you don't have a Bible of your own, please take that Bible with you as a gift from Park Church. So again, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, starting at verse 55. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. 
So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Good morning. It's good to see you all. My name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here. I like to kick up rugs regularly. Um, yeah, one of the pastors here. If you're new to Park Church, I want to say welcome to you. Uh, we have a short meeting right after the service that's designed for you. We take about 10 minutes. We call it introductions. It meets in the back corner of the sanctuary over here. There's a sign that says new here. And, uh, and we'd love to take a few minutes to get to know you a little bit, uh, but also help you find some ways to get involved in our church family, answer any questions you might have. Um, so we'd love to get to know you right after the service. So if you're new and that would help you out, uh, yeah, we'd love to meet up. Uh, before we get into this passage, I want to just draw attention to just a, a heavier reality this morning that I'm feeling. A lot of you um, may have heard that on Friday uh, morning, uh, Pastor Tim Keller from Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City passed away. And um, Tim Keller has been a really faithful pastor, an example, and a really thoughtful Christian leader uh, in the U.S. and around the world for the past several decades. He's had a profound impact on my life, on many of the lives of people in this room, and as our church, um, and in our church as a whole. And, and I, I wanted to just draw attention uh, to him. We're, we're told in Scripture to give honor to whom honor is due. And I think Tim Keller has been a leader and a, a pastor and uh, just a follower of Jesus that is worthy of honor. Um, we, uh, as a community, again, have a lot of our thoughts about what it means to be a church in a city came from work that Tim Keller had done, bringing the gospel to bear in Manhattan for the past few decades in really faithful and compelling ways. Some of you maybe have read uh, The Reason for God, Belief in the Age of Skepticism, uh, which is a really significant book, kind of talking about the existence of God and making sense in a world that's skeptical of the reality of who God is and what the Bible says about him. Uh, Many of us, I know, is profoundly impacted by a book called Prodigal God, where he talks about the story of the prodigal son and and the lavish love of the father towards us when we run away from him, like in explicit ways, but also the lavish love of the Father when we harden our hearts and kind of self-righteous, righteous, like religious activity, his thoughtfulness to engage and put the gospel at the center of everything he did in his ministry, all of his writings, his teaching, his book, The Meaning of Marriage, has had a significant role in my own marriage, in our church family, we've used it as a counseling resource often. He's written works on the the significance of the work that you do every day. A book he wrote called Every Good Endeavor has shaped the way we think about the way our faith shapes our work life in this world, the kind of nine to five of our life. And on and on it goes. Written books on on prayer and, and so many things. Even three years ago when he was diagnosed with cancer, he had written and was working on a resource around walking with God through pain and suffering, which I know has been significant for many of us in our own journey when we're trying to find where is God in the midst of the pain of this life. And again, we could go, we could go on and on. But he's also started this church in New York City, but also started a, a church planting network called Redeemer City to City, of which we're a part of that church planting network. It's where our relationship with the Pachecos in Mexico City began as a part of this Redeemer City to City church planting network. And, uh, and I just think about the work that he did to think about the gospel and how you hold the gospel with deep joy and conviction and put it at the center of everything you do, but engage in different culture and different contexts with thoughtfulness about the dynamics that exist in that culture. And, and he was, at least for me, just a model of that. Even over the past few years, while we were walking through the pandem- pandemic and all the polarization, to me, he was a source of sanity. When I'd read Tim Keller, I'd be like, okay, 
You know, like I feel less crazy with somebody that was thinking about the gospel, but also thinking about reality and speaking with just wisdom around all of it. And so I, I, I think often even in his last in his last days, his faith that he shared and that his family was sharing about his faith. I think about this passage from Second Timothy chapter four, and just thinking about over the past couple of days, his life, talking to my kids about his impact on my life, on my wife's life, on our church. And here's what 2 Timothy 4, 7 says, as Paul himself was approaching the end of his earthly ministry, he says, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And as much as I feel like the absence of Tim Keller, it's hard to think about a world where I don't get a say, I wonder what Tim Keller's saying about this. I wonder what Tim Keller thinks about that. It's just like, it's, it's honestly, I, I've gone to him for that kind of a thing so often. I feel a real grief, nothing like his family and his church family, um, but you feel a loss. But Tim is before the face of his Savior now. He finished the race. He kept the faith. He's been crowned with a crown of righteousness, which the Lord is awarding to him because of his faithfulness. And so just want to, again, acknowledge him, acknowledge his faithfulness, and thank God for his life and his legacy, the way that Christ is magnified in his life and in his death. And so I'm going to take a moment and pray uh, for his family and for their church family, and then we're going to dive in to Matthew uh, for our um, our second to last sermon through this series in Matthew where we're talking about the resurrection. The resurrection that gives profound hope for all of us in the different grief that we face. Uh, every time I think about Tim Keller over the past couple of days, I just start crying because I just think about, I remember when I read that book and I remember when I was going through that thing and I remember, and, and you all have different experiences of grief in your own life, the, the things you've lost, the pain you feel. And it's this passage, this story today that we're looking at where God meets us in the midst of all of those things with profound hope and with his loving presence. And so let's take a minute and pray, and then we'll dive into Matthew 27 and 28 together this morning. And Jesus, we come right now, and we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your death and your resurrection, through which we can know that there's hope even in the midst of loss. There's hope even in the midst of pain. And so we thank you, God, for the hope that that we have, and that I know the Keller family has, Kathy, and their kids and grandkids, and we thank you for the hope that you give them. Would you meet them with, with your spirit right now and give incredible comfort and hope as they grieve? Would you meet Re- Redeemer Presbyterian today as they gather the impact that he's had, not just on Redeemer, but churches all over New York City and all over this world? And would you help us not to ever idolize a human? As Tim would often, often say that he is and we are more sinful than we ever dared Imagine more love than we ever dared imagine as well. I pray you, I pray you right now. Um, meet us, though, with a sense of, of hope, but also a real sense of gratitude uh, for the ways that you magnified yourself through his life and through his death. And so would you pour out your spirit on their community and pour out your spirit here today on our community as we seek to learn what it means to faithfully follow you in this world. So, Spirit of God, would you awaken in our hearts a deep belief in the resurrected Christ, and that we'd learn to follow him, to worship him, to live with joy and hope here and now in this life. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, We are again in our second to last sermon through the gospel of Matthew. We're in 27, chapter 28, and then we're done 
with Matthew. Three and a half years or so we've been in this book. Uh, so wild, wild times. We get to close it off. And where we are right now is Jesus is dead. At least that's where we are like in the, in the book. That's where we are in the passage. Jesus is dead in this passage. What Neil looked at last week, the crucifixion of Jesus towards the tail end. He finally breathes his last. And then as he breathes his last, what we're going to look at today is the reality of his burial and his death. And then his resurrection. And as much as there is debate about the meaning of the death of Jesus, there is no debate over the reality that Jesus died. Like that's, that's established. Human beings die. Jesus is no exception. Jesus died. We can have debate with other people around the world about the significance of that. But the fact that he died was undebatable. Uh, It's undeniable. What there is debate about is whether or not this story, the story of his resurrection is true. And it really is a watershed question for every single one of us. It's the most significant question that you have to sort through in your life. Is do you live in a world where Jesus Christ from Nazareth, who's believed by many to be the Messiah, the Christ, do you believe that he rose from the dead? We all have to sort through that. And it's a watershed question. If your answer is, I, I don't believe that he rose from the dead. Then, then you get to kind of like sort through life and figure out meaning and purpose, however you want it. And there are tons of options. Like there are tons of options. You can go look around at other religions. You can look at other cultures. You can kind of like make your own thing up. Like you can literally, you can do whatever you want. If, if he's not risen, you've, you get to kind of like sort through that and figure out how you're going to approach life. If he is risen, it doesn't answer all of your questions about life immediately. But it gives you a place to start. It gives you someone to go to. It gives you an opportunity to say, okay, I, I, believe, I, I believe in the story of the, res, of the risen Jesus. And I want to learn if he is truly risen from the dead, if he's truly the resurrected one, I want to learn from him what he has to say about life. What he has to say about his own life and my life. What he has to say about the significance of his death. What he has to say about the significance of his resurrection. What he has to say about the history of the world, the nature of the world, the future of the world. It gives you a place to go. If he's risen, it gives you a place to go. And for many of us, what we've found as we've come to Jesus again and again, learning from him, listening to his teachings, looking at his way of life, looking at what he did, we've learned more and more about who he truly is. And we've learned to come to him with worship, with allegiance, with love, imperfectly, with plenty of doubts and struggles. But we've learned to to come to him for those answers and actually give our lives to follow him, believing that not only did he raise from the dead, but that he's going to come again and make all things new. But we're getting way ahead of ourselves. Where we're at right now is he's dead. Jesus is dead. Look with me at Matthew chapter 27. We're going to pick up in verse 55. Verse 55, Jesus has just been publicly executed by the Romans on a cross, crucified for everybody to see. And we pick up in verse 55, it says, there were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. We'll stop there. And what we're going to do this morning, we're just going to kind of work through this passage and just draw out some key themes and some key ideas as we make our way through. And the first thing that that we want to see is, again, in the reality of his crucifixion, even though it was this kind of like public experience, a lot of people around, Matthew's going to highlight the presence of some people. And in highlighting the presence of some, he's also going to highlight the absence of some other people. And it has has significance for us. Throughout the story of uh, the ministry of Jesus, we've learned a lot about these 12 male followers of Jesus. 
12 disciples, and we've watched them interact with his teaching. We've watched them kind of minister with him, be commissioned by him. And there hasn't been a lot of talk as the stories unfolded about the kind of nature of the broader community of followers of Christ that are with him throughout his ministry. And so it's interesting here at the end of the story, what Matthew draws attention to is that ever since his ministry in Galilee, throughout his whole journey, there was a community, a significant community of women that were also following Jesus. The word that's used here for who are following him is a word that's kind of connoting this idea of discipleship, that he had women as disciples, which was unheard of in their culture. Unheard of in their culture. Jewish rabbis would select male disciples. And so for Jesus to have not just a community of men, but a community of men and women together as disciples, listening to him, watching him, kind of living life, serving him, eating meals with him, watching him heal, interacting with him is a profound thing about his ability to actually reach into the margins of society, to actually show his love for all humanity, his love for every image bearer, his care for them, his ability to welcome and include people that society had pushed to the margins and to the edges. It's a profound statement, and it highlights his ability to welcome into his community those that society and power structures have pushed to the margins. But it also highlights the absence of the remaining 11 disciples. Where are they in this story? Well, ever since the Garden of Gethsemane, which we covered several weeks back, they've scattered. Peter alone, it seems, at least in Matthew's account, stayed nearby Jesus. We learn in other accounts, John was also nearby at different moments. But it seems that all of the 11, other than Judas, who's now off the scene, who committed suicide, we covered that a couple weeks ago, the, the remaining 11 have all scattered. And that's going to be important for us to understand where this whole story goes and Jesus' incredible grace towards us in our failure in the ways we fall short. But this story, unlike most kind of histories, is highlighting the failure of the leaders of this religion. Right? When Matthew's disseminating this story, he's writing this narrative, he's one of the 11 that deserted Jesus. He's writing it in a way that doesn't shine a good light on Peter or on James or on John. He's acknowledging the reality that the leaders that would continue to lead and push the message of the gospel forward had incredible failure as a part of their story. And I think that's one of the things the Bible does over and over and over again is it highlights the failure and the weakness and the frailty of the humans that are called in different ways to participate in what God's doing. It doesn't lift up human beings, mere humans like you and like me, as the heroes of the story. Jesus is the hero of the story. And yet profoundly in this story, it does highlight the faithfulness of these that have been pushed to the margins, these faithful women who will show up multiple times throughout this narrative. Uh, Pick up with me. We're going to keep going in verse uh, 56 again. It draws attention to three particular women, Mary Magdalene. Uh, We learn a little bit about her throughout the story. It seems like from the Gospels that she's one that Jesus had cast demons out of her. She had been redeemed by his grace, redeemed by his love, become a really significant follower. We know from different kind of putting together different gospel accounts that the one that we looked at a couple weeks ago where laying uh, down at Jesus' feet, washes his feet, breaks the jar of ointment open, anointing him with devotion, preparing him for his death. It's this Mary, this incredible faithfulness, this incredible devotion, again, exalted by Jesus and by the New Testament writers as a model of devotion, a model of faith. You have this other Mary here, uh, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. There's debate if that's also the mother of Jesus or not. Uh, It's really hard to tell uh, with any real sense of clarity, but it's another Mary. If it's not 
Mary, the mother of Jesus, and there are way too many Marys involved in this story. Like, help us out. Um, this is, there's just so many Marys. Um, but it might not be. And you also have Mama Z's back, Mama Z. Um, Mama Z was uh, the mother of James and John, Zebedee, uh, and uh, the, the one who had advocated for her sons to be at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus in his glory. And now she's seen Jesus in his glory, crucified. And things are beginning to make sense to her. And she's going to be present throughout the story as the disciples, including her sons, seem to be nowhere to be found. Verse 57 moves forward. It says, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who is also a disciple of Jesus. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea shows up in the different gospel accounts. Again, we learn from the different gospels a little more about him. We know that he was a part of the Sanhedrin, the religious Jewish council that had actually condemned Jesus to death. But we learn from the gospel accounts that he had opposed that condemnation, that he had said that's not who he thought Jesus was. We learn that he was a secret follower of Jesus while he was trying to live out his life as a, as a Pharisee or a part of the Sanhedrin with faithfulness, where he really trusted in who Jesus was and was learning to follow him even while he was kind of commingling and involved in this community that was being so corrupted by this kind of commitment to their own power, their own system, religious system. And so Joseph of Arimathea, this wealthy man, a religious leader, says in verse 57, or sorry, in verse 57, that he went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. It says, then Pilate ordered it to be given to him and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and he laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and he went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. Uh, we're going to pause for a minute. I want to talk a little bit about the customs around burial in first century Judaism. So when a, when a person in the community would die, there would be kind of a traditional custom that they'd walk through. Uh, they would first wash the body as a sort of ritual cleansing. After washing the body, they would wrap the body uh, with tight like linen shrouds, linen cloth, burial cloths. And as they would wrap it, they'd also anoint it with oil. And the anointing was both a way to kind of give homage and honor to the deceased, uh, but also as a way to mitigate, honestly, the stench of the body as it would decompose. The bodies wouldn't be buried in the dirt where they, that stench would be covered up by the dirt. The bodies would be buried in a, essentially a cave where there'd be kind of shelves, for, at least for the wealthy in the society that could afford this. They would kind of hew out of the caves, kind of these shelves where they lay that wrapped body on that shelf. They would then roll a stone over that cave, over that tomb, where the body would be kept safe from grave robbers, but also some of the stench would not make its way out into the society. The reason why it was kind of a movable stone is because most people would be buried in a family grave. And so it's one of the things that families would do is they'd buy a plot of land, they'd buy, maybe there's a cave in it already, Maybe they have to hew one out of the rock, but they find some way to create a space where the bodies of their family could be buried. After about a year, maybe six months to a year, they'd go back into the tomb after the body had decomposed, and they would take the bones of that body, and they'd put them in a box about this big, called an ossuary, and they put the bones in the box, and they put the box on the shelf, and it'd stay there in the tomb. And so those kind of longer areas where they could lay a whole body would be there, and then there'd be kind of shelves or compartments or areas, niches in the, in the grave where they'd have ossuaries. And in this particular grave, there are no bodies, there are no ossuaries. It's a new tomb that has not been used by anybody. And so Joseph of Arimathea is wanting to take the body of Jesus and put it in this tomb. It's also a, a, 
noteworthy that when a person was crucified, they would almost never be given a proper burial. In fact, there's no historical evidence of somebody who was crucified getting this kind of a proper burial. There is evidence of people who have been crucified having nails in their ankles and finding kind of bone collections. But this kind of proper burial is a profound thing that wouldn't have happened. For the Romans, they wanted to let the bodies hang on the cross and decompose. And I know it's graphic, but let the birds and the beasts and the animals come and eat it up because it would stand as an ongoing deterrent that if you exalt yourself up and against the Roman Empire, if you rise above your station and you think you have power, you have might, you claim to be a king, this king of the Jews, we're going to show you the outcome of that way of thinking. And that outcome is a brutal, humiliating Death, And so they would normally do that. In this case, though, Joseph of Arimathea went and petitioned to Pilate to be able to take the body and bury it. We're not sure why Pilate accommodated, but he did. And we know that to be a part of the historical account because we know that Jesus' body eventually made its way into a tomb, even from extra-biblical stories and sources. So Joseph of Arimathea takes the body. He walks through the burial custom. He wraps it up. He puts it in his tomb. And Mary, Magdalene, and the other Mary, uh, and it feels like, Matthew might not even know which one it is. He's just like one of the other ones. Um, There's so many, can't keep track. But the other Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, um, also common names, which again, not super helpful. But they watch and they see where the body's laid. They see where the body's laid and the stone is rolled over the tomb. Pick up again, we're gonna keep going. Verse 62. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. And they said, Sir, we remembered how the imposter said while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. Uh, Real quick note, all the disciples seem to have forgotten that. And it's just interesting to me that these opponents of Jesus were paying more attention at certain points than even his followers. And again, you see kind of their anticipation of what might happen, this new scheme that could be worked up by the disciples. So it says this, therefore order the tomb, and these are again the religious leaders petitioning to Pilate, therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead. And then the last fraud, so the fraud of the resurrection, will be worse than the first, the fraud of his potential messianic identity. So the first fraud is his claim to be the Messiah, The second fraud would be the claim that he's risen from the dead. They're saying he's already stirred stuff up. It's been frustrating. It's led people astray. We don't want them to keep leading people astray by claiming he's risen from the dead. So let's set a guard over the tomb. We know this to be history. We know that a guard was set over the tomb. In fact, throughout the rest of the first century and into the second century, the story going around Israel, throughout the region of Judea, which Matthew testifies at the end of this account here, was that those guards had fallen asleep. That those guards had fallen asleep. And if, if there were no guards, that wouldn't be the story, right? The reason why that's the story that's even being testified by extra biblical literature in the second century and testified by other people is that they really did, they really did commission a set of guards, that those set of guards really did experience something where the tomb was finally empty. And so this fear that they have ends up being fundamentally realized, but obviously different than they expected. And so they petitioned to Pilate to order the tomb to be made secure. And and Pilate says to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go and make it as secure as you can. Again, we don't know if this is Roman guards or if this is the temple guard. It's, It's not ultimately that important about who commissioned the guard or whose guard it was. But these guards were commissioned to go and they sealed the tomb with a seal of, rac- uh, with a seal of wax 
around that stone, kind of essentially a stone disc that they'd roll in front of it. They sealed it with wax to keep it secure. They commissioned the guard to keep watch. That's where we're at. End of Matthew 27, Matthew 28, verse 1. We are now in the last chapter of Matthew. Just want to say it. I'm not, I don't know if I'm happy or sad or what, but I just want to, we're there. Uh, Matthew 28, verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Don't be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay, and then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you so. It's a, it's a really dramatic scene. Um, there's essentially another earthquake. Like something happens or the earth itself shakes. It's either in the arrival of this angel or in the angel doing something to remove the stone. We're not sure what, but it's a, it's a very dramatic scene. So the earth shakes, the angel appears, the stone is rolled away. And the guards who are there are witnessing this. And essentially they're paralyzed with fear and become like corpses, like dead people. Again, the irony that Matthew's kind of using to paint this is is that these living guards that are there to protect this dead corpse now become like corpses. And that corpse is nowhere to be found. That corpse is now alive, just highlighting what true death and what true life really is. What really is. And so they're terrified. And that's the experience that people have before angels. If you picture angels as like um, a white guy with blonde hair and wings and a white robe or something like that. And be like this kind of medieval paintings or some renaissance painting or something. You're not picturing the biblical portrayal of angels. You're picturing, again, a bunch of white Europeans reflection on themselves uh, through scripture. And so um, the biblical portrait of angels is always terrifying. When people see a spiritual being coming out of an unknown, invisible realm into light, the the descriptions of these beings are wild and stunning and glorious and radiant and terrifying and overwhelming. And over and over and over, when people see a spiritual being, these warriors of light come out of the kind of invisible realm and into the visible realm, that experience leads people to fall down like a dead man, like these soldiers did, or to fall down in awe and fear and humility, to want to worship, to want to build an altar, to want to do something over and over. These angels have to be like, hey, stop worshiping me. I'm a, I'm a fellow creature like you. Don't worship me. Everywhere these kind of beings show up, people want to like fall down in fear or worship or awe, as is the case here. And this angel immediately assuages their fear and says, don't be afraid. I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. I love that line. I've been thinking about that line a little bit. I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. And, I, and I've, this is a little, it's a, uh, admittedly a little bit of speculation here. But I've been wondering ever since the passage where, where Mary is falling at the feet of Jesus before the Last Supper. 
when Jesus is finally going to be delivered over. She, it's like she understood when Jesus kept saying, I'm going to be delivered over to the Romans, I'm going to be crucified, and then I'm going to rise again. It seems to me like she was understanding that at a level that nobody else was. In fact, it says, Jesus says when he remarks, when they're saying like, what is she doing kind of anointing your feet with this kind of oil? Why is she doing that? He says that she is preparing for his burial. When they're all saying, you won't die. Surely you won't die. Like somehow it was registering for her in a way it wasn't registering for others. So I wonder, why are these women staying near the cross? Why are they watching where he was laid down? Why are they coming back later to pay attention? Well, the angel says they're seeking Jesus. And I wonder if faith was already at work in these women. Already at work. Still surprised and stunned by what's about to happen. No doubt. It's a surprising and stunning event. But something in them was inclined towards faith. To believe in who Jesus was and what he had said. To trust in his promise in ways that nobody else seemed to understand. And so the angel tells them that he's not there. And he says, come and see. And, and I love that phrase. We'll come back to it at the end. But come and see. He's like, I'm not just telling you. I want you, you saw where he's laid down. Come check it out. He's not there. His body's gone. And we learned that the cloths were wrapped up and tidy. The ones that had been used to, to bandage up a crucified, scourged, whipped, bloody, broken body. What's there is these clean cloths are there, wrapped up. It's this sense that Jesus... Uh, truly did what he said he would do. And he tells them to go and tell the other disciples that Jesus is going to meet them in Galilee, which again is a couple days journey up north where they had done most of their ministry. Look at verse 8. It's again profound. They immediately immediately leave. It says they, they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, which are like the right emotions. I know that's like psychologists would probably say, there's no right emotions. There's just your emotions. Uh, but I'm just saying, when you, when you experience Jesus, when you experience Jesus, this sense of awe at, at who he is and what he's done and this sense of joy are the emotions that just start welling up within them. Jesus in a moment is going to speak to their fear, to dissipate their fear. And say his kind of presence is a kind of presence that dissipates fear. But their sense of awe at what's happening it is profound. It's profound. And I love how this story rolls out here. It's, it's surprising and funny in a, in a kind of weird, low-key way. So it says this. Uh, so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. That's funny. And here, here's why it's funny. Uh, what, we, I, after all that's happened, right? When Jesus is born, it's like the, a, a multitude of heavenly hosts come singing glory to God in the highest and peace and goodwill to his people on earth. And when the angel comes, it's just like this earthquake and everything shakes. And, and Jesus is like, when, you're going to see me coming with the clouds of heaven. So what, what I would expect here on the resurrection of the Christ, the Son of God, the, the reversal of everything that's led to brokenness in the world, the beginning of the new creation, the, the enthronement of the Christ, the King of glory, what I would expect is something like there was great lightning and peals of thunder. The earth at Self shook and the caves were ripped open and the curtains were torn and, and out of the cave, riding on the clouds of heaven, came the, the Savior, the Christ, and he said, Behold, I am the first and the last, like the living one. I was dead and now I'm alive. Like something like that, right? Like 
Something like that. And instead, Jesus says, hey. I love it. It's literally the most common word used for hi. It's like English translators didn't just want to say hi, so they gave it this kind of like Star Trek Spock, like greetings, you know, like something like this kind of like weird, like weirdly formal thing. It's not the formal word for hi. Nobody says greetings. If you do, I, yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Um, whatever. But he says, he says literally the most common word used for hi which it's, it's the most profound moment in human history. And Jesus is still being so accessible, so approachable, so human. He is 100% God, but he's 100% human. Sometimes we expect God to meet us in these profound ways. And we want like our church services to explode with joy and celebration, like Easter Sunday, every Sunday. And you want your devotional time to be like, man, my heart lit up and I was just in awe and wonder and I was dancing naked on the roof and just singing songs about Jesus. And it's just like, and what did it, don't do that either. There's lots lots of things not to do. Uh, Don't say greetings and don't dance naked on your roof. Um, And instead, Jesus just says, hey, I'm here. I'm alive. I see you. I see you. And somehow his living presence, his resurrected life, gives incredible hope. And although his response and interaction with him is so ordinary and so accessible, their response understands the significance of what's happening. They understand exactly what's happening. They understand what this means. And so their response here to fall at his feet in worship is, is beautiful. As ordinary and as accessible as he is, they still understand what this means if he's alive is it means that he is the Lord. In fact, if you go all the way back to Matthew, this word for like worshiped at his feet is a word that's used a few times throughout Matthew. One of the first places it's used is when Satan says to Jesus in the wilderness, if you will fall down and worship me, then I will give you all the kingdoms of this earth. And Jesus replies, quoting from Deuteronomy, and he says, no, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God only, and him alone shall you serve. What Jesus says is the only one worthy of worship is the Lord God Almighty, Yahweh himself, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And when these women see the risen Christ, They lay down and worship, and Jesus doesn't say, stop that, stop that, I'm not the Lord. He receives their worship because he is the Lord. He is God in the flesh, God incarnate, who came into this world, who laid down his life. They saw, they're realizing, they saw God in the flesh, Emmanuel, crucified. They saw God in the flesh crying out, forgive them, they don't understand what they're doing. They saw God in the flesh crying out, it is finished. They saw God in the flesh surrendered, humbly offering his life, laying down his life in sacrifice. Even for those who abandoned him and betrayed him, even for those who cried out for his crucifixion. They saw that. And now as they see him alive, they're realizing he is the Lord and they lay down their life in worship. This is the response when you consider the reality of the resurrection. It's worship. It's worship. And worship isn't just what we do here together. We, we should sing the songs we sing. We should sing and we should dance with clothes on. And we should celebrate and we should laugh and we should party and we should enjoy and we should do all of that. But we should also 
learn that worship is all of life. Worship is this afternoon. When you eat and when you drink and whatever you do this afternoon, we do it for the glory of God. Worship is tomorrow morning. How do you put Jesus at the center of your life tomorrow morning? How do you put Jesus at the center of your vocational life? You're working at an office. You're on Zoom. You're working on people's spreadsheets. You're, you're teaching kids. You're wrapping up school. You're doing these things. Whatever it is, how do you put Jesus at the center and say, my life, you are the risen Christ, and I'm here to give my life and allegiance to you, to devote my life to you, to orient my whole life around you? How do you put Jesus at the center of your family? Your family, the way you think about interacting with your spouse, interacting with your kids, interacting with your parents or your siblings. How do you put them at the center of your relational life? That my relational life isn't just a life of consuming from other people and giving and getting from them what I want, but actually learning to love and to care and to pay attention to the needs of the people around me. This is a life of worship. And it's the right response to seeing Jesus as the risen king and saying, here's my life. I give it to you. You are the risen Christ. You are the crucified one and now you're alive. And I want to give all of my life to you in worship. And that's what these women do. They give us this model of that kind of response, that worshipful response. It's a profound, profound moment. Jesus says, greetings. And they came up and they took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And then Jesus says this, and I just love this. His, his grace something. He says, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers. Love that. Jeez. They like totally deserted him. Failed big time. Just calls them brothers. I love that. The Lord, the King of glory. People are falling down like dead people in front of an angel. Jesus, Jesus was with the Father, one with the Father in the creation of, the, of that angel. It was through him, by him, for him, that all things were created, all things have their being, all things hold together. He, he is one who is worthy of total allegiance and affection, all of life in honor and submission to his reign, his kingship as the creator king. And his love and his grace is stunning to me. We have all fallen short. Those disciples are a model of all of us. In all the different ways that we turn from him, in all the ways we struggle continuing to follow him with faithfulness, we have our doubts and our fears. There are times we're following him, we just like turn the other way. In his posture of grace to call them his brothers and not say, where are those, where are those guys? Those guys, those, I, knew they were, I knew they wouldn't stick around. I knew they'd tank when the going got tough. I knew, I knew they'd head out. Thanks for sticking around with me. You guys are my favorite. And uh, those guys, you know, they're done. I mean, he honors these women because their faith honors them. And they're worthy of that honor. And he still shows incredible grace to those who have turned from him. Which I just think is a way, is a, is a way for us to think about what, it, what does it mean to approach Jesus? That his grace and his love is stunning to me. And so he commissions the women to go tell my brothers his family. He's like, these are my siblings. We're a part of the same family. That he would call us family is ridiculous. To go to Galilee and there they will see me. 
His grace is stunning, and we have this invitation to, to look at him, this risen Christ, as the one who has all glory, all authority, all power, but also incredible love, patience, kindness, accessibility, warmth, nearness, that he's the kind of God who could like reign over all things and create a world of beauty and abundance and power and glory. He can work miracles and he can work his power out in stunning ways and he can come up to you and put his hand on your shoulder and say, hi, hi, I see you, I'm here. And the joy that they experience is because they realize that what this means is that it's not just kind of a one-off thing. See, the Jewish people didn't kind of like have all this worked out understanding of what the future of the world would be, but the majority of the Jewish community had an understanding that there would be a day when God would come and make everything right. This is the age of the resurrection. They could read about it in prophets like Isaiah, that there'd be a day when everything would be made new. They understood that, and they were waiting for that day. What they did not expect is for that day to begin with a singular experience of one person. That when Jesus rose from the dead, it was this foretaste, this first fruit, this kind of first installment of where the whole world is headed. That to see Jesus alive, Jesus who had suffered injustice, Jesus who had been betrayed, Jesus who had been falsely accused, wrongfully condemned, Jesus who had suffered intense rejection and death itself, to see him alive and well and there and loving them, not like struggling and still like wounded, but like there to love and to meet them with his glory, in his glory, for them to see him in that way, it meant that there's hope for everything that's been broken by human sin in this world. Everything that's been broken in your heart, in your life, in your experience, in your relationships, in our society, in our city, around this nation, around the world, everything that's been affected by sin and is now affected by brokenness and corruption and death, all of it, when Jesus rose from the dead, it brings this new hope, this new kind of joy, because it means the whole world is headed there. It was the first installment that they continued to live in a world where there'd be pain and death. That's not what they expected. They expected it to all happen in a moment. Everything made new. Instead, it happened in Jesus. And they continued to live in a world with division, with struggle, with doubt, with fear, with failure, with loss, with grief, with death itself. But they could face that painful reality with unwavering hope because they experienced the risen Christ. He's alive. And if Jesus is alive, then all will be well. If Jesus is alive, then all the pain we experience will eventually feel like a light, momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory that's being stored up for those who trust and follow Jesus, the crucified and risen one. When we face trials with this hope in the resurrected Christ, we have incredible hope to face with honesty all of it. And that gives real joy, not just circumstantial happiness, but a deep, a deep joy in the chaos. It gives hope when your marriage is in a rough spot. It gives hope when your friendships are feeling division and pain. It gives hope when you're wrestling with chronic pain or grief or the loss of a loved one or a diagnosis. It gives hope when you're looking at the injustice in the world and you're experiencing injustice maybe in your own life. It gives hope when you look at your own failures, your own flaws, your own contribution in your sin to the brokenness of this world. It gives hope because when Jesus rose from the dead, it means that everything can be redeemed and restored. He is the first fruits of where the whole world is headed. And that ought to give us incredible joy. I love that, that they respond with joy and worship. And even where they feel fear because they understand who he is, he says, you don't need to be afraid because he's the gracious one. It's a beautiful, beautiful scene. I'm going to pick up in verse 11. 
And I think this has profound implications for us. I, I've thought often, why did, why did Matthew include all of this in his gospel? And I think it's for people like you and me um, to process our doubts. Look at what he says. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and they told the chief priests all that had taken place. So some of the people that were there that witnessed the angels, that were terrified, that were paralyzed with fear, eventually they kind of come out of their trance and they go and they are like, bad news. Not only did we fail our job, but I think he's alive. <laughs> you know, like, I don't, I don't know what they saw or experienced. I don't know, but just, they, they, it's, it's not good for them what happened here. This is literally their job. And they, if, if there's ever a failure, uh, this is one. It says, while they are going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders... And taking counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, that's Pilate, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and they did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Matthew includes this story because there, there was news circulating that this whole thing was a sham. So Matthew's trying to help people understand the resurrection of Jesus in a world where there's two stories. There's the stories of the disciples, and there's the stories of, of the religious leaders. These are both circulating, and people had to wrestle with that. And, and that, that's a real thing. We have to wrestle today with the same thing. We have to wrestle with what, what do we do with the empty tomb? What do we do with the resurrection of Jesus? There are plenty of reasons as you live your life and interact with other people for you to have different opinions and thoughts and doubts, for you to interact with your really kind neighbors who don't believe in Jesus and be like, man, they're wonderful people. Do I really believe something like totally different? Does it make us both equally true? Is it true? Did Jesus rise from the dead? Did he not? What does that mean for the whole world? I start thinking about what's happening in Africa and what's happening in Europe and what's happening in Asia and what's happening in India and what's happening in South America. And I start thinking about around the world, the different belief systems and like, is it... Do I really believe this? Do I really believe that Jesus is risen? Apparently, I think people in Matthew's day were struggling. Do you know doubt isn't in contradiction to belief and faith? Doubt is a companion to faith. It's a total companion to faith. If you're not honest about your doubts, then, then it's not like a healthy kind of faith. If your presumption is everybody else around me is totally 100% sure about this whole thing, you're wrong. You're like, you're not? No, I'm not. Like, I, I, I struggle with doubt, like you do, like most of us do. When we decide we're going to kind of like pretend like we've, everything's crystal clear, 100%, I know this, I know I'm right, and I'm, I'm not willing to like think and learn and listen, and I just bury my head in the sand and don't face my own fears, my own insecurities, my own uncertainties then it's actually a really fragile faith. When you learn to get honest about your doubt and to work through those in community with Jesus, with other people, what you find is God meets you in the doubt. For, for these two Marys here in the passage, when the angel tells them he's gone, he says, come and see. Like, come and see, I'll meet you here. And as they're going, maybe, they, maybe they're still kind of wondering, like, all right, the angel was legit and the body wasn't there, but what, what the what? I mean, like, what is happening right now? And Jesus meets them there. He meets us in these places of doubt and insecurity and fear and uncertainty. Learning to be honest about that is healthy 
It's really healthy. And this passage is given to help us at least come to some clear sense about the resurrection. Here's, here's what I would say about this passage. We talked about this on Easter. What we know for sure, when I say for sure, I'm talking about non-Christian historians that are worth anything would agree about these things. There was a man named Jesus from a little town named Na- called Nazareth. He, he had a ministry where there were a lot of people that were following him, but he didn't rise up through the religious ranks. Many of those followers began to believe that he was the Messiah. Many of those followers claimed, at least, that he had done miracles, healing people, and miracles in creation, and miracles in the spiritual realm. They claimed that his teaching stood apart from the religious elite and the religious establishment. We know that to be true. We know to be true that the religious establishment rejected Jesus and was in constant conflict with them. We know that to be true. We know historically to be true that the religious elite took Jesus and condemned him to death and handed him to the Romans, and we know with no questions historically that Jesus was crucified by the Romans. We know that. We also know that Jesus was subsequently taken off, put in, put in a tomb, and in that tomb, he was there, and we know that a guard was set over the tomb, and we know that the guard was intended to keep watch over the tomb, and we know that on the third day, the body wasn't there anymore. That's history. You're like, how is that history? Because the story circulating by non-Christian sources was that the guards fell asleep. And the disciples stole the body. Why would you tell that story if you weren't trying to make sense of an empty tomb? You could just say, no, let's go and roll the stone away and we'll show you the body. Which they would have done a year later anyways. They would have taken the bones and put them in an ossuary and tucked them on a shelf. So we know that to be true. So what you have to wrestle with is what's more likely? The religious elite leaders making up a story to protect their power? Or hundreds of followers of Jesus claiming that they had seen him, talked with him, experienced him, and giving up their whole lives, giving up their security, many of them suffering a martyr's death to spread the news that Christ is risen. He's risen. We talked about this on Easter. People don't lie to get into trouble. People lie to get out of trouble. These leaders were making up a lie to get out of trouble. The story that the disciples shared and spread got them into trouble. It cost them their lives. And they held fast and laid down their lives in generosity, service, love, and sacrifice to spread the good news that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He suffered on the cross not as a mere tragedy, but offers life to atone for human sin and rebellion. And he rose again on the third day, giving new life and joy to all who follow him. That's the message that these women were commissioned to go and spread to the disciples, and that the disciples and the early community spread to subsequent generations, and that we celebrate here today, 2,000 years later. And that's the, the news that we're called to worship Jesus because of, and to be a part of this mission to spread the news where he's called each and every one of us. We're going to talk more about what it looks like to spread that news and to be a part of that mission next week. But for now, I think the response that we ought to come to is joy and worship. Joy and worship. Jesus is alive. And our prayer is that he would even meet you today, here and now, in ways that would be so accessible to you, so personal, so tender, so what you need that what will come out of your life is a life of joy and devoted worship to him. Let's pray that he'd do that among us. And Jesus, we come right now and we ask for your spirit to work. 
just like you showed up in the life of Mary Magdalene and the other Mary and you spoke a word of kindness to them, you'd, you'd walk into their life and say, hi, I'm here, I see you. I pray, I pray for that right now today in this room where people are experiencing pain in their own life. Maybe it's sin that they've been clinging to. Maybe it's uncertainties, fears, and doubts. Maybe it's a weariness. Maybe it's ongoing experience of division and relational difficulties. Maybe it's a sense of their own weakness or just feeling depressed. Maybe overwhelmed and anxious with life. Whatever the case may be, maybe there's a lot of grief. There's been so much loss even in, in like this small kind of relational world that, I, that I'm in, seeing so many people who have lost their lives recently, many of them way, way too young. I pray you'd show up with that kind of nearness, that kind of love today. You, the risen Christ, would, would show up with power, resurrection power, to bring us to a place of joy in you, but also a place of worship. Would you help us in Christ's name, I pray, amen. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.